that we're looking at this morning is the 50th uh, chapter of the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 50, and it's verses 1 to 11. And I read from verse 1, so Isaiah 50, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions. Your mother was sent away. Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. And then in verse 4, it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my backs to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. And verse 10 says, Who among you fears the Lord that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands and walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze, this you will have from my hand, you will lie down in torment. That's the passage of scripture that we're looking at uh, this morning. And my family, we've recently, many of you will know, we've recently moved into a Uh, a new house and in the middle of our home is a a fireplace which we're not used to but being uh, the middle of winter and being cold um, our children have already made sitting around the fire their their favorite place to be and so they love to after school or when we get home from work to sit around this this fireplace and it made me think uh, that as a church family uh, we gather now I can see all of you there gathering around and we have in front of us the word of God and so we gather around the the fire of God's word and the blazing center of God's word is the glorious person and work and offices and attributes and gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so that's where all the light and the heat comes from in the Christian life. And the, the structure of this 50th chapter in Isaiah is much like that as well. In the beginning, in verses 1 to 3, uh, there's uh, what three headings I'll give you. In chapters, uh, verses 1 to 3, there are some complainers. And at the end verses, which is verses 10 and 11 at the end, there are some companions. And they all gather around verses 4 to 9, which is the, the blazing center of this chapter. 
and it's a picture of our champion, and it's none other than Jesus who sets his face like flint to undergo the sufferings that secure the salvation of his people. <coughs> Excuse me. And so this morning we're looking at, it really is one of the most well-known passages of Scripture in the entire Old Testament. And it's, it's uh, the third of four prophecies in the book of Isaiah that are known to us as the servant song. So this is the third uh, servant song. But look with me at verse 1, and, and we'll see these complainers. And the Lord here, he, he asks his people, Israel, he asks them two questions. And, and the passage says, Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? And so Israel here, to understand this, this verse, Israel is complaining of being taken away captive in Babylon. Uh, the passage is actually written 150 years before that actually takes place, which is incredible in itself. But, but they're complaining of being taken away captive. And you'll remember they lived under the Mosaic Covenant. So there were, uh, they were promised blessings for their obedience, curses for their disobedience. And the reality was that they had been disobedient. And even in the opening chapter of this book of Isaiah, in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, the, the, the whole book opens by saying this, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. They don't recognize their master or their Lord. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. And it says, they have, Israel has, abandoned the Lord. And they're trying to understand how their banishment and exile in Babylon has come about. And I think we sometimes go through situations where we're like, how did I get into this situation? So Israel is, how did we get in such a predicament? But in their twisted hearts, and I think we're prone often to do this as well, rather than acknowledge their sin was the cause of their situation, they consider themselves as victims. It just happened to them. And one commentator, he described this as they were, they were justifying a self-pitying despondency. They were, they were saying, it's okay for me uh, to be self-pitying and despondent. This has all just happened to me. I've done nothing wrong. And that's a really horrible response because instead of letting their own sin rest on their shoulders, they blame God and they question God for leaving them. That's what God's people are doing. Uh, to their shame. And in the words of Isaiah 49, prior to this one, this is what Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And it wasn't true at all. Um, but these opening words of our, our first verse, they indicate that they thought that God had divorced them. He'd sent them away permanently. Or, or the custom in the time was that they'd been sold as slaves. Uh, which was re required when a debt needed payment. If you, if you owed money, your dependents could be sent away as slaves. But at the, the end of verse 1, God gives his perspective and he corrects their thinking by saying, Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. So the blame rests on them. And so they, they were sent away. Um, but it's important to remember that it was only a temporary separation otherwise it would have violated God's word to his people 
And a, a few chapters on, in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 7, we see this clearly. Don't turn there, I'll read it to you. But this is Isaiah 54, verse 7. It says, For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with an everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. And so God looks back on a time when, when he called to his people to listen and obey. So look at verse 2. He says, Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? And, and in the Hebrew, the, I learned during the week that the wording here is emphatic. And it, it's, it means, why is there not a single individual? Why is there no one at all that will listen to my voice, that will obey my commandments? Not a single person. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, I'll read another passage of Scripture. It, it reinforces the same, same thing. It says, Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. And in Isaiah chapter 42, Israel, the, the people of God as a whole, are, are also called God's servants. So we're going to see the, the suffering servant shortly, but Israel are also a servant of God. And they, there they wouldn't listen to their master. And so in Isaiah 42 verse 18, it says, Hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? And this can't be speaking of Christ, can it? You wouldn't describe him as blind. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? So Israel was a servant. They'd been sent as God's messenger. Who is blind as he that is at peace with me, or so blind as the servant of the Lord. You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to make the law great and glorious, but this is a people plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves or are hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey with no one to deliver them, a spoil with none to say, give them back. They've got no deliverer to, to bring them back. And, and the same question is asked there. It says, who among you will give ear to this? Who's going to listen to God? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? And so there was not a, a single person in all of Israel to answer the call. No one was listening to God and no one was obedient. And so it falls on on deaf ears. But in verse 2, if you have that passage in front of you, verse 2 they say, um, and because behind this is their questioning of God's power to redeem, God says back to them, is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? And he, and he answers his own rhetorical questions by reminding them of the exodus. So their minds go back to that great deliverance where God displayed his power to save his people. And our text says, it lists four things here. Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. And they'd be thinking of Exodus 14 verse 21, where God dried up the Red Sea. Uh, our passage says, I make the rivers a wilderness. And in Joshua 4.23, the Jordan River 
was turned into dry land. Um, another reminder for them was the, the uh, first plague in Egypt. And, and it says their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. And you remember that first plague in Exodus 7 verse 18. And then he goes to the, to the end of the um, plagues in Egypt, if you would accept the, um, the final one of, of losing the firstborn son. And he says, I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. And so in Exodus 10 there, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness that may be felt. And so this is God pointing them back to the Exodus. I can deliver my people. I've shown you I can deliver my people. And so to answer the question, God's hand is not so short that it couldn't save his people, even though they thought they were in this uh, terrible situation and beyond, beyond deliverance or the ability for God to save them. But this deliverance of the Exodus to them was a past event. It was long ago. Um, and the Israelites need here another exodus. They need a second, a greater exodus. But they don't need just another temporal deliverance from the land of Babylon. They need something that can deliver them from their own disobedience and their rebellion towards God. That's what the biblical narrative is building up to. Exodus points forward to something greater, something that we know of in the New Covenant. And so we're starting to see that play out. There are disobedient people that won't listen or obey God, and they need a, a greater salvation. And they need something that will deal with really their hearts, but the cause that all their trouble comes from. And this is what we, we start to see next. So we've seen something of, of these complainers in verses 1 to 3, that Israel, as the, the first servant of God, would not listen. And now, in, and really in stark contrast, um, in verses 4 to 9, we see another servant, a second servant. You could even think of him, I know Isaiah 53 is the, the fourth servant song, and we, we call him the suffering servant. And, and in this silence, this call that's gone out to listen to God and to, to obey God, um, Hebrews 10, 7, it's like a beautiful verse, and it says, we hear this, this one voice rise up and says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And so Jesus, or the Messiah, uh, for them looking forward to this Messiah that would come, he answers the call that his people failed at. And so verses 4 to 9, they really give us a unique picture of our Messiah. We don't see, um, we don't see this this shows us things about Christ that we wouldn't necessarily focus on or see because here we see something of, and this might sound like an oxymoron, but we see something of the training and the preparation of our Lord when he had taken on a human nature. And you might think Jesus is God and you would be correct. And maybe he just came into earth, took on a human nature. He needed no training, no preparation because he was God. He just walked through every trial uh, with, with no effort, no strain. He's just God. But that's not the full understanding of who our Lord was. He, he truly took on a human nature, felt the pressures that we feel, underwent the struggles that we struggle with. And we see him here um, learning and increasing in knowledge. And that's what it says in Luke 2 verse 52. It says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And in 
in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 5, verse 8, it speaks of Jesus and it says, He learned obedience through the things that He suffered. And so Jesus is, as a man, learning and growing in wisdom and knowledge. And so what's quite amazing about the passage in front of us, these, these uh, middle verses, 4 to 9 of this chapter, um, is that it's, it's what's called a soliloquy. And so we hear Jesus speak his own thoughts out loud, and he tells us about how he prepared for and faced the trials in his life. And I hope you're thinking, man, I hope this is going to help me if this is what we're going to see about Jesus. This surely could apply in some way to our lives, but it tells us how he prepared for these trials and how it was that he set his face like flint and didn't shrink back from laying down his life on the cross, which was the, the crowning test of his obedience. And so if you look at verse 4 of our passage, you'll notice that, that Jesus speaks of himself as a disciple. We know that Jesus had disciples, but here he speaks of himself as a disciple. And so verse 4 says, The Lord has given me, and this is, this is the voice of Christ speaking in these passages, the Lord, so God the Father has given me, God the Son in human flesh, the tongue of disciples that I may know, and this is a beautiful verse, that I may know how to sustain a weary one with a word, just with a word. <coughs> and so we, we think, don't we, of, of Jesus standing there in, in the New Testament saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But our verse goes on. So he, he has the tongue of a disciple. And it says, he awakens me. And he's speaking of the Father, God the Father. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. And the, the image is drawn from a, a master waking his pupils early for instruction. And so this is where Jesus drew his wisdom and his strength from. Every morning, the Father would awaken him and speak with him. He would read God's word. We see in the Gospels, he was proficient in the Scriptures. Even as a child, he was, he was shining in his understanding and his study of God's word. But, but every morning, the Father would awaken him, would speak with him, and Jesus would listen. And every morning, Jesus began his day, we could say, by listening to God's word, reading God's word. And we see in Mark Chapter 1, verse 35, it says things like this of, of our Lord. It says, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying. He was spending time with God. One commentator, he said this, the, the morning watch is not a special provision for a unique servant. It is the standard curriculum for all who would be disciples. It's, it's a habit that we should all be looking for in one way or another to be making this part of our lives. And Spurgeon would exhort us in the same way by saying, Dear friend, if you mean to be resolved to live as Christians should, you also must be taught of God. You must go to the Word to learn what God the Lord has spoken, or else you will be ignorant and fickle, sometimes hot and sometimes cold, and changeable as the wind. Christ's resolution was sustained by divine schooling, and it must be the same with yours also. And so after 
Jesus would, would listen to God's word, that was the first thing that was preparing him for the way in which he lived. After he would listen to God's word, he was also obedient to God's word. And so if you'd look with me at verse 5, it says, The Lord God has opened my ear. It like inclines his ear. And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. And, and the idea of turning back there means literally to slip away backwards or to take evasive action. And so often in our lives when something's tough, we evade it. We take another route. We take a, a softer road. But our Lord didn't turn back. He didn't slip away. He didn't fade off. He didn't deviate. And he, he kept going exactly the course that the Father would have him go. And so we, we, we get a sense that, that God's Word, when he's hearing from God as well, when he's reading God's Word, that it made demands on him which would have a natural tendency to make him turn back. And it's the same for us as we read God's Word. There's a natural tendency in many things that we're asked to do that would make us turn back. But our Lord didn't waver for a moment, and He is to us a model in this passage of unwavering resolve and godliness. And so if you, you look at verse 6, it says, I gave my back. He didn't just happened to be in this situation. He actively put himself forward in obedience. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. And I think to be spat at in the face, and I trust you know what this is alluding to in the future, but if I was to be spat at in the face, the first thing I would do is to cover my face and to hide and to turn away. But he didn't cover his face from humiliation and spitting. You, you imagine him with this stern resolve, continuing to walk towards the cross. And in, in the 26th and 27th chapters of Matthew, I won't look there in detail, but Jesus was scourged and flogged. He was whipped on the back. They spat in his face. They beat him with their fists, it says. They struck him, they stripped him, they mocked him, and they eventually crucified him. That's the, the challenge that our Lord is walking through with this resolve. And so when it speaks of those who plucked out his beard, Matthew was laughing at me during the week because I was studying this. And the Bible says a lot about beards, and it says a lot of good things about beards. But it, it says to pluck the hair is the highest insult that can be offered. And so to their culture, it was terribly insulting. And even in the book of Leviticus, they weren't to, to trim the corners of their beard. Um, but if in, in the book of 2 Samuel, and it's chapter 10, verse 4, I'll read it to you. It speaks of these people. It says, so Hanan took David's servants, and so he'd captured these servants of David, and he shaved off half of their beards. So you imagine half their beard is gone. And, and they stripped them as well, cut their clothes up to their hips. And it says, when they told it to David, he sent to meet them. And it says, for the men were greatly humiliated. To have your beard shaven was a, was a great humiliation. And so we might ask, how could this man walk through such a disgrace? Where, where do you get the character and the resolve to walk through that? And when you think for us, but where does that character come from? And verse 7 is, is the secret. And he tells us, he says, how, how did he do it? For the Lord God helps me. That was the, 
the drum beating in the back of his mind. He knew that God helped him. And so from all eternity, not only had the father given this work for the son to do, um, which he had, he had also promised that through it all, the father had promised the son that as he went through and underwent all this work on our behalf, that, that God the father would uphold him, that he would help him. And so in the the first servant song is in Isaiah chapter 42. It's the first few verses. And verse 1 it says, um, and this is the father saying to Jesus, he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. The father is upholding him. And you can imagine as well, Jesus would have been waking up in the morning reading these scriptures, knowing they spoke of him. What an incredible thing that would be. But but Jesus clung to that promise. As he lived in his humanity, he had an unshakable trust in God. And so we see something here of the faith that Jesus had. Have you ever thought of that? We think of us as having faith, but Jesus, living in his human nature, had this incredible faith in, in God. And so no matter what he went through, he knew that God would provide all that he needed. And perhaps we would... Uh, do well to remember that God's people and us, we have also been addressed with the same promise in Isaiah 41 verse 10. It's speaking to the nation Israel, but we see it affirmed in the New Testament to ourselves. It says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's what our God promises us. But Jesus here, he, he fills his reservoir of resolve by believing that God is with him and that God is for him. And I, and I hope we all do the same thing. But it's because of this unshakable faith that verse 6 continues. So imagine, he has this faith and trust in God that he will help him. And then these other things that we see result from it. It says, therefore or because of that great faith in God, therefore, I am not disgraced. And that blows me away, because it, it looks like he really is disgraced. But therefore, I am not disgraced. And another thing, therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know, I know that I will not be ashamed. And in every earthly sense, Jesus has been disgraced, but his eyes were on his Father, and, and what was pleasing to him. <coughs> and this verse says that in spite of everything, he was not disgraced. And, and there's a beautiful line in the, the second servant song, which is in Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 5. And Jesus says, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. <coughs> and so he's honored in heaven. He's disgraced on earth. But this is really the, the heart of this 50th chapter to see the unflinching resolve of Jesus as he was approaching the cross. And so the, the parallel text, perhaps you've already thought of it in your mind, in, in Luke 9 verse 51, speaking of Jesus, and there's a point in his ministry when he just turned and he started heading towards Jerusalem. And Luke 9.51 says, When the days grew near for him to be taken up, that speaks of all that would happen at the end of his life, it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so this, this fixed determination to redeem his people, 
and to finish the work that the Father had given him to do was the all-consuming passion that ever burned within his soul and nothing, there was nothing that could set him off course. And so if you think through his life, you think his resolve was tested by the devil in the wilderness. Do you remember that? At the start of his ministry, didn't eat for something like 40 days, was weak, famished, and, and the devil is tempting him to, to come away from the Father's plan and to say, look, God's not helping you. Just turn this stone into bread and everything in his human body and nature would have been pulling to disobey God, not to trust that God would provide for him. And he trusted God and, and resisted the devil, but his resolve was tested in the, uh, the wilderness and he refused to yield. We could think of at the end of his ministry, they're like bookmarks that help us understand what, what was going on in the life of Christ. At the beginning, he was tested. At the end, he was tested. And you, you imagine him there in Gethsemane, when he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, and he's in the most anguish you could imagine a person to be. He's begging, pleading with God uh, to, to give him another way. Lord, is there another way that I can get away from this work? And there was no other way. And so still he, he pressed forward, and then his resolve was ultimately and finally on the cross it was tested. And you imagine him, God the Son with all the power to command a host of heaven and angels, he could have swallowed up all the people. They were mocking him to, to save himself, and he could have brought himself down. But that inward resolve and character to be obedient because God wanted him on the cross, with that character driving him, he resisted and he stayed. And so with deliberate steps and a constant pace, our unwavering master set his face. <clears throat> but I love another passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 12. If you turn there, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Excuse me. It says to consider him, to think of him, who endured from sin is such hostility against himself, which is, which is what we're just doing, to consider him. And it says, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And do you see how it applies to us? <coughs> we consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. So Jesus was struggling against sin. The Father had given a command he was telling him exactly what to do. His job was to lay his life down on the cross. For him not to do so would have been to sin. And so in his struggle against sin, he, he succeeded. But we look at that to give us hope to not grow weary and faint-hearted. And so there's something about contemplating this admirable uh, quality that helps us in our own struggle against sin. But if you look now... Excuse me, if you look at verse 8, there's another thing we notice that, that helps him uh, to do what he did. And so we see here in the, these following two verses how conscious Jesus was of his innocence. He knew he was innocent. And so verse 8 says, He who vindicates me is near. 
Who will contend with me? Let us stand up with each other. Can you, can you hear the confidence of our Lord in these verses as everything looks like it, it shouldn't be a cause for confidence? He says, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up with each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. He wants to talk face to face. Tell me, talk to me. Point out something. Point out some sin. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Again, it's anchored in his faith and trust in God. Who is he who condemns me? And you think in the New Testament, don't you? This is Jesus with his own confidence in his own earthly life and work. And, and we can say in the New Testament, as if God is for me, who is against me. But, but these are the words here of this middle section. I wanted you to see a champion. These are the words of the only man who ever lived, we could think of him as the only voice that answered the call of God to listen and obey, the only man that was ever justified by his works. Jesus was justified by his works, and I'll let you think about that, but he was. But this is another ingredient that fueled the steadfastness of our Savior. He knew that he was innocent. There was no sin that stained him. He was a spotless lamb. And, and, and so this, this conscious knowledge of his sinlessness was another ingredient that sustained and energized him under all of the false accusations that were laid against him and all the taunts and, and disappointments that he was facing. But he knew in his mind he had done no wrong. And while we can't, imitate this to the degree that Jesus did because we're not ever going to be perfect. And while Christ's obedience and righteousness is what is the ground of our salvation, there is still a principle that helps us to, pres uh, to persevere under our difficulties. And I, and I read it beautifully explained like this, and it speaks of a, a clean conscience. It says conscience, or when it's once defiled, makes cowards of us all, but, but if we have a conscience void of offense toward God and men, that is a fountain of courage and the source of great strength when we have a clean conscience. That, that helps us. Uh, and so we could state it neg negatively by saying the more we tend to compromise or the more we tend to disobedience, the more we tend to cowardice. So living our lives with a clean conscience gives us something of that same resolve uh, to live strongly and obediently for our Lord. Verse 9, it, it finishes by speaking of all Jesus' opponents, his doubters and his accusers. And it says, behold, like <laughs> they had their little victory and their taunts while he was standing there on the cross. But he says, behold, they will all wear out like a garment and, and the moth will eat them. And I was listening to a, a Scottish minister during the week, and he was visiting an old church. Like, and they have in Europe, they have much older buildings than we do. He was visiting this old church, and you imagine a stone building. And he, he went down into this little room at the back of the church, and he opened the door. And in, in this little cupboard was a, a black preaching gown. They would used to wear them. People like Martin Lloyd-Jones would preach with a black, a black gown on, and he he looked at this gown and he reached out. No one had touched it for years. And he grabbed it with his hand to hold it. And it just disintegrated and fell on the, on the floor like dust. And so the moths 
had eaten it. It was temporary. It passed away. And so, so that's a picture of all those that come against and accuse and try to find fault in the righteousness of Christ. They try to find a defect in our salvation. Um, but as we see the, the, these words, those confident words of our Lord, who can come against me? Who can find a fault in me? They were first spoken by Jesus after he had lived a perfect life. But we see in Romans chapter 8 that all those who would uh, come against those of us in Christ, those of us that believe in Christ, we say those words. We can speak those words. Who can lay any charge against God's elect? And it's not because we're sinless ourselves. It's not because we lived the same life as Jesus, resisting sin until the point of shedding blood. But it's because we're united to him by faith and his righteousness is given to us. And so it's because of him that we can have that same confidence standing before God. But the, the words of the, uh, sorry, the fourth servant song, that's the one I mentioned in Isaiah chapter 53, they also link the victory of Christ to his people in the same way because you'll remember these words. It says, the righteous one, there's only one, the righteous one, my servant, speaking of Jesus, and it says, will make many to be made or to be accounted righteous. And so this moves us nicely to our final point, to this last group of people. And so we've seen uh, in the first three verses, we saw those complainers. We've seen in these, this middle section, verses 40, uh, 4 to 9, we've seen the champion, we've seen Jesus. And, and now we see in verses 10 and 11 some companions, some people that will join with Jesus. And so verse, um, I guess these, you could think of these last two verses as an, an invitation to, to share in Jesus' justification. That's what was happening on the cross. Jesus was being justified, or, or his vindication really was in the resurrection when God had said, I have accepted it. It's good enough. But Jesus was justified in that very real sense. But verse 10 says it turns away from uh, the Messiah stops speaking and this invitation now comes out to, to us and to, to anyone. It says, verse 10, who is among you that fears the Lord? And so the call came out and it fell on deaf ears. And now after seeing the Savior, the call comes out again. Who among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light, and it says here, let him trust, this is the way or the gate to heaven, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's exactly what was the key to Jesus' success. It was his belief and trust in the Lord. And so this call to join Christ and to be counted righteous with him is presented as faith and trust in the name of the Lord. And it's on that basis that that Christ becomes the picture in the New Testament is so simple but so clear. Christ becomes the vine and we are the branches and we're grafted in together and that same spiritual sap that's flowing through the vine now starts to flow through us and, and, and we begin to see the benefits of all that was in Christ. The same spirit that rested on him in full measure now comes and dwells inside us and so when we look at the unflinching resolve and the obedience of our flinty-faced uh, Lord, perhaps I could say it like this, to trust in God gives us access to all those same 
graces, all those same things that were helping Jesus in His humanity, the Spirit of God will begin to work in us something of that same resolve, something of that same character. And so if it were up to me to tell you what I thought this morning, I would probably finish my sermon there because I think that's a nice place to, to stop. But if you look at verse 11, it's a divine warning to those who would refuse to listen to this call. Verse 11 says, Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, you imagine people standing there with torches, who walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze, they're walking in their own light. Um, so it means that they, they, they've made their own light, they, they live life on their own terms, they've made up their own version of religion that suits them, this is their own light, their own steam, um, and they do what they think is right without true respect to God. This is the warning, if, if you would stay and if you would not hear that call, this you will have from my hand, you will lie down in torment. And so I thought it fitting to finish the whole chapter there. But while preaching on this passage, particularly I think it was verse 7, this is what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, My great object is to lead you to love him who so loved you that he set his face like flint in his determination to save you. O oh, you redeemed ones on whose behalf this strong resolve was made. You who have been brought by the precious blood of this steadfast, resolute Redeemer, come and think a while of Him, that your hearts may burn within you, and your faces be set like flints, to live and die for Him who lived and died for you. But let's bow our heads and pray. <coughs> Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we... we well, I feel my inadequacy to open my mouth and, and speak of what we've seen of Christ. Lord, may you do what I can't. May you apply your word powerfully to your people. May you save sinners and sanctify saints. May you rain down resolve and help us in our struggle against sin. Lord, may you bless your word in proportion to the accuracy in which it was taught. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>